Welcome, guys, back to the Grateful Living Podcast. Today, I'm thankful to have Aparna Sherwak Ramani with me today. Aparna was the breakout star of Netflix hit series Indian Matchmaking. She is also the founder and owner of the luxury travel company My Golden Balloon. And she is also coming out with a nonfiction memoir, She's Unlikable and Other Lies That Bring Women Down, which is set to come out March 22nd. Prior to Indian Matchmaking, Aparna was also a lawyer for over 10 years. Parna, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me tonight. Of course. Thankful to have you on. Uh, so for people that don't know you, can you kind of take us back to the beginning, you know, where you grew up, your family situation and what type of kid you were? Yeah, so I was born in London in uh, England, and my family was back and forth between London and Dubai until I was about seven. I moved to the U.S. when I was seven. And I have basically, we tried Manhattan, not actually a place kids should live, um, or my mom thought so anyway. I might disagree now, but, um, and then we tried Jersey for a year. And otherwise, um, once we moved to Houston, when I was about eight, I've been here since. I recently, though, this past year, uh, quit my job as a lawyer, quit my family and friends and home here in Houston and moved up to Manhattan. I live in the West Village now. So that was a big change. Um, this all kind of spun out after the show that many of you probably met me on called Indian Matchmaking. That came out in July of 2020. And by April of 2021, I was in New York. So I'm happy to report I am still a recovering attorney and I'm enjoying my career now as a hopeful writer. Yeah, no, that's awesome. So, you know, in, in watching the show, one of the aspects that comes up is your mom being a single mom. Uh, I'm curious, you know, growing up, were you self-conscious about that? Like, and um, do you have a relationship with your father? Um, I was not self-conscious about it. I was very young. I was seven. I don't think seven-year-olds have a lot of self-conscious behaviors. Um, it was just my norm. I think a lot of us grow up in whatever we consider normal. And for me, it was normal. Um, I had a live-in nanny, so it was two people taking care of me still. I have a sister who's two years older than me, and we were a happy foursome. My mom is very close to both her brothers, so them, um, they were very close by always. And I grew up in what I believed was a happy, loving home and still believe, even if it's non-traditional looking, that it was a, a beautiful community and tribe of its own right. Um, I am I'm close to my father. He lives in Bombay. Um, he is lovely. I mean, just because your parents don't work out doesn't mean that your uh, family unit really breaks apart. So I'm, I consider myself very fortunate. Yeah. As you look back, um, does there a piece of advice you would give to someone uh, who's growing up in a similar situation or does anything come to mind in terms of, you know, just not letting that emotionally affect you a ton as a kid? I mean, we all have things that emotionally affect us as children. I don't think that as an adult, I could give advice on that. Um, I think that as a child, we have formative years and we grow up, like I said, in our own norms. And as long as there's a lot of love, I consider whatever child to be quite lucky. And if there's not, then, I mean, that's emotional wounds that you probably have to heal as an adult through proper therapy. Yeah, yeah. Which I, I fully advocate, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, 100%. Uh, the, the other interesting thing 
that I saw was at 16, you were um, diagnosed with Crohn's disease. Uh, do you want to speak a little bit about, you know, that? And, you know, I know it was, you know, seven months of no diagnosis and, and things like that. Yeah. So, um, you know, an autoimmune issue affects so many different people. It looks very different in every person. Um, for me, I got Crohn's disease when I was a sophomore in high school. Um, it's very hard to grapple with a diagnosis like that. Um, and the months before the diagnosis like that, when you're really sick while you're also navigating high school, um, that is not a lot of, um, there's not a lot of support from your friends at that age. You know, we're all children and we don't really know how to support each other. Um, we're all living under our parents' houses. So you're very isolated when your friends are moving on um, with their day-to-day -day healthy lives. You know, kids with autoimmune diseases um, often feel quite isolated. I know I did. Um, I'm a very extroverted person. I do have very good friends. I always have. I'm very lucky. But there was still that void there because, um, you know, some of us were barely driving at the time. We were struggling with our own AP classes. Um, you're a lot more insular at that age. And so for me, I look back on that period. It taught me a lot about leaning on myself and my family and uh, my true strengths um, to kind of get through those very difficult days leading up to the diagnosis and then through the healing process, which takes about a year or so. Um, it taught me who my friends really were. It taught me about what friendship looks like um, from the few people that really stepped up. I think it was an important first lessons of adulthood um, that maybe came a little earlier at 16 than many other people. But for me, it was quite pivotal and formative in the way that I build and grow relationships and also in the way that I build and grow my own resilience. Yeah. You know, again, a similar question, but as you look at your you know, time with Crohn's disease. Is, is there anything in terms of whether it's, as you mentioned, um, you know, a, how, how a friend can support you or is, is there anything in terms of living with it that you would um, now give advice to someone who may be getting diagnosed with it today uh, in terms of what's helped you, what's worked for you or what to understand in terms of, you know, trying to make the best of it? I'm not a doctor by any means, but as someone who has had personal experience with an autoimmune condition now for 20 plus years, I would say that the most important reminder I can tell someone starting out on this journey, um, if they've gotten a diagnosis recently or someone who's well into it is to remember to always give yourself grace. Um, you know, your health will take over at times that are very inconvenient um, and will be very defeating sometimes. And that is a part of this condition. Flare-ups are, are common or can be. Um, they will not come at the opportune times you need them to come at. They, they follow their own rules. And I think we, as people who have conditions like that, that are chronic and uh, you know, will follow us for the rest of our lives, we have to kind of balance that and what that means to us and the way that we navigate life around that condition. And I think there's still a full, happy and healthy life. You just have to work within what you have been given. Um, and that looks different for all of us. So I would say lean, lean into, you know, kindness to yourself and grace for whenever you are uh, not feeling well. Yeah. Uh, soon after that, you went to Rice University. Uh, do you want to talk about what led you there and um, how was your experience there? 
Rice is a lovely school. I was supposed to go to Harvard or Stanford, um, but I was still very sick at the time. My doctors were all here in Houston and it ended up being the best thing that's ever happened to me. Um, I really do believe the universe aligns you with where you're supposed to go. I made some of my best friends at Rice University. I got a beautiful education um, at a small school with loving professors um, who really cared about our education and what we were learning. I got to study abroad two times. I felt very fulfilled um, in my education and my personal life during that period. Um, it's truly a special school. It's uh, very Southern in many ways, very urban in many ways, um, but very uh, nurturing in, in most ways. And I think that has really aided me in loving um, the learning process. And I'm a continuous lifelong learner because of the years I spent at Rice. You know, you went to a semester at sea program. I'm, I'm curious for any co current college students considering studying abroad, you know, obviously that experience probably had a huge effect on you, right? And to the point of, you know, starting a, a luxury travel company later on in your life. Uh, can can you talk about, you know, for someone, uh, maybe they're a sophomore in college thinking about it, you know, what what would you say if they're fearful of what it might mean or or what would you say um, as you look back on your experience? You know, uh, for me, it was a pivotal experience about growing up, too, about learning how to stand on your own two feet when you're thrown into uncomfortable situations. Um, traveling the world is an uncomfortable situation sometimes. You know, you're hitting different cultures, especially on semester at sea every week. Um, you are navigating Burma and then India and then Africa and like South Africa. And you're just like, wait, what just happened? Um, so it taught me a lot about adaptability. I think that's a beautiful lesson for anyone who's considering studying abroad to, to really see that as the focus of their time away from their school and their home campus. It's about navigating new cultures and staying flexible. Um, many things will go wrong when you're alone in another country. <laughs> That's a part of the beauty of it. Um, yeah. And I would say whether it was my study abroad in Italy, um, which was one hometown, right, for four months or traveling the world continuously, they were both rewarding. There is no wrong experience. Um, any experience outside of your home campus is a valuable one. And I believe that it adds so much to your education, but also to who you become as a person. Yeah. So after that, um, I saw you went to Vanderbilt for law school. When did the idea of law school come in? Did you go into Rice knowing you'd be pre-law or how did that come onto your horizon? Yeah, I decided when I was seven, I was going to be a lawyer. So I kind of uh, stuck to that path, tried and trued all the way through. And then at Rice, it was very normal. There's a lot of people taking the LSAT at the same time, applying to schools at the same time, going to law school fairs at the same time. It's a very normal path at Rice University to go directly from undergrad to law school without taking time off. So that environment really nurtured the process and made it quite simple. And um, I also applied to a couple of consulting jobs at the time and got a great offer with a strategy consulting firm and um, had a decision to make. And I'm glad I made the decision to go to law school. I think Vanderbilt was very similar to Rice in many ways, a small Southern private school that really focused on um, you know, professor to student ratios being really small. And um, it was really helpful to me. Again, it was very nurturing. I did not take time off. I went directly from undergrad to law school. And I think that that kind of environment was really helpful to me and helped me grow 
um, as a student and in my practice of law and also in my friendships and my personal growth, you know, I moved away from Texas for the first time, if you don't count my study abroad, and mm-hmm. lived in Nashville, Tennessee for three years, which is um, very different than Houston. It is not diverse. It is not or not as diverse, uh, it has its own diversity, but it's not as diverse as Houston. And um, I was very shocked by many of the things that I encountered there. I had never lived in the South before I thought I had when I grew up in Texas, but it turns out that the Southeast of the country of the United States is, it's beautiful in its own right, but it was definitely a culture shock for me. So I always joked that that was my fourth study abroad. I did uh, two studies abroad in Italy, one on semester at sea, and then I went to Nashville for three years. And uh, I love my time there, but uh, it's definitely a, a new experience. Yeah. As you look back on your law school experience, is there is there something that comes to mind in terms of, you know, trying to make the most of it, um, you know, for any current law school students out there? Um, does anything come to mind as you look back? Um, Like I said, I went straight from undergrad, and I think that um, there's a special experience there for uh, all the people that do that, because it is a continuation of basically your undergrad education. Um, But I look back now, and I see people that took a year or two off in between, or even more, and they treated law school as a job. They treated it as an eight to five. They were very balanced. They would come to the library, they would study, they would leave at 5 p.m., and take care of their families or their partners or just their life. And we, uh, those of us who came straight from undergrad, hadn't found that balance or discipline to treat it like a nine to five or an eight to five job. And so it bled into all parts of our life. We would stay up cramming for finals and do all those things that you did in undergrad without maintaining that balance that I saw older students um, easily maintain. And um, I don't know which experience is better. Maybe there was a camaraderie and a sweetness to the fact that we were still acting like 22-year-olds our senior year of college all the way through the age of 25. Maybe that was irresponsible. I don't know. Yeah. Um, it was my experience, though. And my experience would maybe, if I were to do it over again, be more balanced, like some of those students who um, were able to separate the school from their life. Yeah. Um, after Vanderbilt, um, I saw you worked at four different firms uh, as, as you look back at your career as an attorney, uh, is there anything that you'd like to pass on to, you know, someone maybe in their 3L um, in terms of making decisions for joining companies or uh, making the most of growing within a company as a lawyer? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, look for a field and a practice area that works for you. I think that um I never found one, which means that law wasn't for me. I I did switch a lot. Um, Every two, three years, I moved to another firm, just looking for a fit that suited me better. I tried plaintiff side. I tried defense side. I tried in-house. I tried general counsel. I tried it all, and uh, it didn't suit. Um, So find something that suits you. We all have our um, curiosities and our understandings of the world, and find an area that works for you um, to maintain the life that you want to live. Some people want a more balanced uh, lifestyle. Some people love the grind of litigation. They think it's thrilling. And I can see all of those aspects, but I also caution people to find what works for them. Yeah. Uh, So 2017, um, Hurricane Harvey comes to Houston. Uh, Can you speak to, you know, what that experience was like living in Houston? 
Yeah, I mean, I speak about it in chapter one. It is um, a pivotal moment in my life where I lost my own home in it and all my possessions. And I think it taught me a lot about the way that I view material possessions, that everything is transient and that we can lose everything that we know one morning. We can wake up and our home is flooded and then we have no socks, no mattress, no childhood photos, um, all in one fell swoop. So should we really get attached to the things that we own? How long are they ours anyway? Um, so it was a, it was a moment, um, of clarity for me, a very difficult one. I do not wish hurricanes on our enemies. Um, it is hard. It is a long process. It is not overnight that recovery happens. It takes about a year or two and, um, it is riddled with challenges with insurance companies, with legal problems, with all kinds of administrative stuff that no one talks about. They think you can just buy new socks. It doesn't work like that. Um, so it's, um, it was interesting too, to see the city brought to its knees. So many different areas were affected. So many were not. And I think there was a stark difference between the neighborhoods that were affected and not the way that hurricane Harvey came in was in bands. So only certain bands of the city were affected and others basically two miles away were unaffected. Um, it, it became a real, uh, understanding of community and humanity. I think it was invaluable for me to see, um, how communities stepped up during those times, those who were affected versus non-affected. And um, yeah, I wouldn't do it again. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. But um, it happened and I dealt with it. And I think that's a big part of life that it will happen. Things, you will lose things. You will lose people and your pets and homes and God knows what else. There will be a litany of things you lose in this life. And that's how you deal with the loss that will shape you. Yeah. So I saw in 2018, uh, you started my golden balloon. I'm curious, you know, what made you start that? You know, so many of us have passions outside of, you know, work, but we decide not to do things. I'm curious, you know, what, what was the light bulb moment to being like, I'm going to go for this and try it out? It was always a side hustle, so I didn't have to put too much thought into it. If it failed, it failed. All that was put in was my time and a few resources money-wise. I had a business partner that complimented me. She was in branding, marketing, and strategy. I was obviously, uh, even then, a writer and um, was a lawyer. So I did all of our legal stuff and did all the content writing. She did all the uh, website management and you know things like that. We were a perfect pair. I would say to anyone thinking of this, find someone that compliments you, especially if it's a side hustle, because you will not have time for it. I mean, I was working full time as we grew this company and it was really about consistency and remembering why I wanted this company to survive and thrive and giving the time every week to the company um, so there were many Sundays where I would work from, you know, nine to five at my laptop in my office at home. And I would want to be with my friends or sleeping or watching TV or working out. But I had to give a work day one day a week to this company. So it is not for the faint of heart. It is not for the lazy. Um, and you really have to be focused on why you're doing it. Yeah. So, you know, what most people know you for uh you know, Netflix's Indian matchmaking show, um, you know, I, at some point, I assume contacts you in 2019. Um, can you talk to us about how you got involved into applying and, um, you know, that initial application process? 
Yeah, it was a pretty simple process. It was a five minute application. Uh, I did it while I was standing in line at the LAX airport. And little do we know that the few things we do in line waiting to board a plane will change our lives forever. It's interesting to think back on that moment and how little thought I gave something that would literally shape everything. It makes me sometimes stop and think on these inconsequential days. What am I doing today that's actually going to change my whole future? And it was literally just that, a one-page, five-minute application. They called me a few days later. We started the process of casting, which is a bunch of Skype calls. And then they offered me a spot on the show. It was a show that had never been done before. It was um, supposed to be a docu-series. It was highlighting a matchmaker and her seven clients as they tried to find love. And I truly believed I would find love. My thought was great. At the end of the season, I'm going to be married and I cannot wait for my future to begin. Mm -hmm. So I went in it with a lot of hope and a lot of optimism. And unfortunately, the matchmaker was not uh, up to par at a 0% success rate. <laughs> and, um, yeah. Many of us are still single today. Yeah. Um, can you Can you talk to us about you know, maybe your experience from, you know, April to December of that year in terms of taping. Uh, and then maybe as you, as the, you know, show is relate, released in July of 2020, you know, just the juxtaposition of those two things. Sure. I mean, I write about it a little in my book. I'm really not supposed to talk too much about production. Um, but in general, there, there is a taping process where they follow, you know, certain days, um, very minimal uh, amount of taping done. And um, they follow you along a six month period. I tape from April to December. So I guess that's an eight month period. And then um, seven months later, the show comes out. And so there's this lag time where you have finished your journey of taping and it has turned out to be not successful. And you know this for yourself, obviously. And then the show airs and the whole world consumes it. This particular show was consumed during a pandemic when people had a lot of time to watch TV. And it kind of went viral based on, actually, I don't know based on what, but it went viral. And um, I'm sure there was a million factors that played into that, including the pandemic. But uh, yeah, it was a, it was a shock to see the show. I did not expect it. Uh, I did not expect my edit. I still patently disagree with my edit. I will be very vocal about that. My whole book is called "She's Unlikable and Other Lies That Bring Women Down." Um, I think edits are harmful. I think mine was particularly harmful because it was based on things that were not true. And um, I will always be very clear about that. And I am unapologetic about that, as I am unapologetic about many things. And I, um, yeah, I'm glad that I got to tell my own story. I think that's the most beautiful part about a book, that it is your words and your platform and your memories of um, very specific things, ranging from an autoimmune condition diagnosis at 16 to uh, the day your viral show, you know, culminates um, on Netflix and, and really takes the world by storm. I think these are all moments in our life that shape us. And it was a beautiful experience to write them all down and kind of collect them in that one place. That's a point, if we can, I'd, I'd like to stick on, um, you know, because for the viewer... Uh, they probably don't have that self-reflection and analysis. Um, you know, the fact that, you know, obviously I don't know how many hours, but there were a lot of hours taped of you and that's distilled into, you know, 
whatever an hour's worth of showing of you in in eight episodes can you uh, help explain that you know to the audience that might not necessarily think about that right away yeah, I think I learned a lot about media consumption, and I was actually alarmed at how stupid people are about it. I mean, not to be impolite, but it was wild to me that people watch television and they're like, that is truth. And it's wild to me that they do that with their news outlets. They do it with CNN and Fox. They do it with reality TV. They do it with anything. And for me, I am so discerning myself that I was like, wait a second, did I do this ever? I had to ask myself. And I thought back to my early 20s and I would watch The Bachelor and I thought, well, did I believe it? I think I did. And so I don't blame them per se. I'm just confused by it. I'm like, how can we consume reality TV now for 20 plus years and still not understand that hours of footage are are made? And then some little person in a room somewhere edits it all and makes it so simple as if the person is no longer nuanced, as if they're not three-dimensional, as if they're not human. They're in fact an archetype. They're a princess or a teddy bear. They're a villain. They're a narcissist. They're, they just put us in these tropes and these archetypes. And I, for one, am not here for it. I mean, again, the title, she's unlikable and other lies that bring women down. The lies that bring women down are all the harmful archetypes that reality show editors have made over the past 20 years. The reason they continue to make them is that they are in the business of engaging people and they are doing their job by engaging people with these polarizing figures. Every villain, almost every villain on an on a unscripted show is someone who is smart and ambitious and driven. She's and knows her worth and then they vilify them. Why? They vilify them because it works over and over again. Aren't we sick of that? Aren't we bigger than that? Aren't we better than that as a society at this point? I mean, we've just watched Love Island. I don't know. Actually, people watched it. Um, maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. But we know what came out of it, that contestants were committing suicide. The host committed suicide. There was this very harmful side to reality TV Um where those people who are consuming this TV are partially responsible to be better consumers. And um, I would suggest that challenge to all of us as we watch not only our reality TV, but also our reality on TV, which is our news outlets and any other talk shows. Um, always be aware who is editing this and what do they have to gain by showing you this? And if we ask ourselves questions like that, we can still enjoy the things that we watch. But there's a difference between enjoying and then believing it to be absolute truth yeah i think if it, you know a specific example that kind of shocked me was learning you know the way netflix shows it is um with your first date that it ends at the axe throwing or whatever mm -hmm. um and that's the way they portray it and then i later learned um you guys actually did go to dinner um, but the way they portray it is, as you say, no to dinner or something like that. And I think that, I mean, that's a perfect example of, you know, making sure as audience members, we don't, you know, we take everything with a grain of salt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have to be careful about how we view what we're seeing. If it's entertainment, it's fine. If it starts becoming our absolute understanding of the situation, it's not fine. Yeah. So, you know, in terms of the reactions to the show, I'll, I'll start with the negative first and then we'll go to the positive. Uh, talk to me about how does your ch life change in that first day um, and people are 
saying things about you um negatively and you know um uh, you know i i don't know you you walk us through you know memes or um you know tweets at you or um i don't know when you know eventually i, I think some death threats happened and stuff like that but being cast as the villain um by the greater audience you know can can you speak to that um you know as a human that went through it yeah so i was not prepared at all for it um i thought it was really interesting the show came out and was kind of like got some buzz from the salvation community and then it grew right it um was not heavily marketed i don't believe that's my understanding of it it was the first season of a show that no one had heard of and um it, it grew and grew and grew and became so much more powerful and bigger than we could have ever imagined and as it grew the trolls grew and i didn't know about trolls so i was at first just blocking and deleting but then they multiply because that's literally their keyboard warriors like that's they think it's funny or i don't know what they think it kind of gave me this really ugly viewpoint of society and how like depraved some people are. Um, I look back on it now and, and I'm like, wow, I can't believe I let that affect me. But I had never been in the public eye. I was just a lawyer in Houston, Texas. How was I supposed to know that this even existed? I had never gone to anyone's Instagram page after watching a show before. I had never even thought to do that. Like for me, that would be, have been a weird thing to like consume something on television, go immediately to my social media platform, find that person and then write to them or write a comment to them. Like that didn't even make sense to me. And yet it was happening in the tens of thousands. And um, for me, it was confusing. It was, it was mortifying. It was scary. You know, people were literally threatening my life, my family's life. Uh, people were coming by my house. I owned the home I live in. So they were finding my address on public records. They knew where I lived. Um, it was frightening. I think people are frightening um, after reality shows come out. And I would honestly never wish that on my enemy. Um, but I made it through. I think that I stuck to my guns. I spoke to all the press that wanted to amplify my voice. I took that as an opportunity. I mean, a lot of people months later would say, oh, whoever was running your PR machine was brilliant. What PR machine? I'm a lawyer <laughs> yeah. in the middle of a pandemic. Like yeah. the Washington Post DM'd me. We had a like mutual friend and she was like, can I write a feature story on you? Same with the New Yorker, the New York Times, Vulture, Betches. Like it was female journalists that were sick of the trope that wanted to give me a voice. And I will forever be grateful. I read about it in my book about my love for these introspective uh, warrior journalists who were saying, no, she's the hero. Um, and I think that's a great segue into our next portion, which is like the people that loved me. Like for me, I still don't agree with the edit, but the macro motto of Aparna on Indian matchmaking was ask for what you deserve, believe you deserve it, and then don't settle. And that is a part of who I am, that part anyway. And that resonated with a lot of women. I mean, imagine Netflix's reach. This is being aired on the same day in Italy, Oman, South Africa, Malaysia. I mean, name the most obscure country to you. And they were watching Indian matchmaking. Mm -hmm. And so what happened is I got tens of thousands of DMs from all kinds of women, from all kinds of backgrounds who were on Team Aparna. That's what they called it. They loved seeing someone who looked like them or acted like them or was put in a position like them say, no, thank you. And for me, that was just my normal life. Like I've grown up very sheltered and uh, very, um, 
you know, a beautiful educated community where I was uh, congratulated for all my achievements. And I was always told, find a partner that's worthy of you. I mean, I thought that was normal life because again, we only think what our bubble is, is our norm, right? And then it turns out that the world was so much bigger and that I had so much more to be grateful for to my family and my friends and my peers for building me into the person I was because I was able to then communicate with the world that they too can take a a little piece of it, a little slice of it and apply it to their own lives. It might look different. You know, it might look different in Pakistan or in South Africa to, to be in Aparna, whatever that means to the, you know, the viewer, but they can do it also. I, I don't know if you want to, but is, is there something you would like to say to, to someone that views this content um, or any, anybody's content and then goes and, um, you know, is negative towards someone or commenting hateful things or, you know, is there a perspective that you can share with them to kind of, I mean, for me, it's, you're a human being, like, you know, realize that and then realize you're, you know, it's a reality TV show and, and you know, stuff like that. But is there something you would say to those types of people? No, they didn't. They don't deserve to be spoken to. Yeah, hundred um, percent. I, if the last question on this topic, you know, you said you've grown a lot in terms of the the you know negativity. I'm curious for you know for someone in a similar position, you know, today, how do you handle that? Do you look at comments? Do you you know how how do you you know handle um that aspect of being a social media influencer it's been a year and a half since the show now so everybody who is following me and looking at my content is 99.9 percent uh part of my community um believes in the who i am and what i'm saying uh, or at least it resonates with them i don't really get negative comments anymore if i do here and there um i just block and delete and don't even think anything of it uh, should I choose to ever be on an international stage again on television, I would also be much more hardened to the whole thing. Um, I, I don't think it can ever affect me the way it did that first time, just because I was in so much shock and because I believed that it was unfair and unjust that I had gotten the bad edit based on untruths. And thus my anger was stemming from the fact that it wasn't even true. Like if it was true, I would have been like, mm, it was true. They didn't like me. But I was like, that's not even true. And it was the absolute indignation of that that um, made me even more angry. And so, I don't know. I just feel like um, I'm, I'm okay with those people now. If they come at me once in a while, I don't even notice. Yeah, yeah. In, in terms of what you're talking about, and um, you know, the, the positive that you were able to turn all of that into, you know, knowing what you wanted and sticking up and not settling down. I'm curious, you know, for, you know, like men or women out there, you know, how did you develop that uh, in yourself, you know, to know I don't want the funniest guy in the room or, you know, I like me, like developing that mindset is kind of tough. Uh, I'm curious how you got there. Well, it wasn't tough for me, though. And that's what my story is about. I mean, the reason She's Unlikable was written is because tens of thousands of women asked, well, how did you become this way? 
how exactly what you just asked me. Well, how did, how did it happen? And so in the book, I go through the moments where I became who I was. And I feel it, they're all quite pivotal moments. Losing your home in a hurricane, being diagnosed with an autoimmune condition, having a single mother, all the things we've talked about here, having these beautiful um, experiences of education, being able to travel at a relatively young age in my early 20s. Um, These are the things that shaped us. And we all have our moments that shape us. And they're all worthy of a story. Um, I wish my bookshelf was filled with men and women in their 30s who were discovering the world around them and were taking the lessons that they had learned to make them stronger and more open to growth. Um, Unfortunately, that's not where our bookshelves are yet. And so what I hoped when I was writing this was maybe this will be one of the first stories like this that's exploring your 30s um, and all the things that made you be so gritty or resilient. I I hoped that this would be a window for other people to examine their own lives and say, what did I lose to gain? What did I learn to learn more? Um, I think it's an important questioning period for us this, this age anyway. Yeah. Have you been able to conceptualize, you know, when someone, um, you know, wears a be like a Parna t-shirt or, um, you know, I like me or, uh, have you sat back and reflected on, you know, the number of lives you've changed and things like that? Do you, do you think about that kind of stuff? No, I never do until like I meet someone, you know, I live in New York City. So there's a lot of people and I got I get stopped a few times a day. When I first got there last April, the show was newer, right? It was like eight or nine months later and I got stopped like 10 to 15 times a day. Now, most days I'm only stopped by one or two people. Um and it's interesting to speak to them always um, because they they tell me things like this. They, they have a moment with me, you know, we're at Trader Joe's or I'm crossing the street and um, they say the kindest things to me. And I'm always so touched. I'm like, wow, I'm literally standing on the street corner with you. And they're like, you changed this for me or I cheered you on or I wanted to be like you. And and then the moment's over and they're gone. And it's an interesting perspective because 99% of the time I'm just living in my own world, trying to do my own thing. Um, and then I get these little hints that something I said or did in 2019 is still changing someone's world. That's wild. It's absolutely wild. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Um, you know, in, in terms of the show, is there anything else about, um, you know, matchmaking or anything else that... Um, you'd love to to relay? I mean, if you ever get a matchmaker, make sure they're on your team and that they align with your values. I think that was um, my biggest friction point um, with Seema. You know, she had a lot of regressive views, a lot of misogyny. I go into that in the book. And I think that's really harmful for women. And I think giving her a platform is very harmful. Um, I maintain that. I stand by that. And I still think that matchmakers can do good and be good. But you, if you're looking for one, I would caution you to find one that aligns with you um, and cheers you on and supports you. Because um, I certainly didn't get that from my matchmaking experience. And that was a real pity. Yeah. No, 100%. Uh, So, you know, in... uh... 2020, we, you know, go through um, a pandemic and um, with a uh, chronic illness, um, you know, that's that's a different, you know, relationship that you have to have, um, you know, when the vaccine does come out, you know, whenever December of 2020 or 
between that time and March of 2021. Um, can you speak to that, that journey? Um, and, and, you know, for those, the people that don't have a concept of, um, you know, what it's like to live with a, um, autoimmune disease. Well, there are a lot of unknowns, you know, I was one of the first people to get the vaccine with an autoimmune condition. I got it in January of 2021. So right when they came out, the healthcare workers got it. And then I got it pretty much the same day. And um, they were watching me, you know, it's it's interesting, I had to register with the CDC and turn in all my um, side effects. And I was basically a guinea pig. Um, what does someone who's on a biologic drug um, have to do with this vaccine? And I was ready to kind of do that. Um, it was scary. Of course, we had to watch very carefully. And um, the periods before the vaccine were even scarier because there were all these cautionary tales that you are the weakest link with this autoimmune condition, that you and the elderly are going down first. Um, so I was very careful. Um, you know, the first few months, I think all of us were. And then as the world kind of loosened up, I stayed quite um, careful. I mean, it was July of 2020 when the show came out too. I was very busy after that. I mean, like I told you, I was doing press day and night, working full-time, writing this book proposal and dealing with the social media, uh, full-time job of social media. And so for many months until about November, December of 2020, um, I was caught up in that. And then the vaccine came out right away. And then I kind of resumed my life. I moved to New York City. I started traveling a little more. I, uh, my Golden Balloon did its first trip to Kenya um, in June of 2021. And um, I just got COVID for the first time recently, like this Omicron um, that was spreading through um, New York. Thankfully, I'm double vaccinated and boosted, and it was very mild. And I think that uh, that was very reassuring to me. And I felt very lucky um, because I know that a lot of people without immune conditions are very scared and maybe their experiences are different than mine. I can only speak to my own. And my own was that I was very lucky and I had a very mild case. You know, you mentioned it a little bit there, but uh, you ended up taking a sabbatical and leaving law uh, and moving to New York. Um, talk to us about that process. Were you scared about leaving law? No, I think I thought it, I knew it was inevitable. So it was I could leave it now. I could leave it in two years. I could leave it in two months, but I was going to leave. And I think when you know you're going to leave it's easier to leave whenever it does come up. And so I was tired. I didn't realize that press would be literally six hours a day, every day while I worked that full-time job and wrote the book, a proposal and did social media. And I wow. knew that I had to cut something out. I was sleeping three yeah. hours a night. I wasn't drinking water. I wasn't exercising. I wasn't seeing my friends. I was a zombie. Yeah. And the thing I cut was my job. I had four things on my plate. I just named them and I cut my job. Um, some people might not agree that that was the thing to cut, but for me, it felt right. And since then I have moved on from law and I don't know if I'm going back ever. Yeah. Um, you know, after you gain all this fame, um, you know, what, what's the biggest change to your lifestyle now? Um, the biggest change in my lifestyle that there's no certainty anymore that before I knew every two weeks I was getting a paycheck and I was going to move to the next, you know, layer, like maybe become a partner or, or go in house. And there was always like a trajectory and now there's no trajectory anymore. It's the living on a prayer and I'm okay with that. It's scary. It's overwhelming, but it's a choice I made and it's a choice I made so that I can explore the best life that I can live. Yeah. 
So the book's coming out uh, March 22nd. Um, do you want to uh, talk about who who could, who is this meant for, who should read it, um, things like that? Yeah, I touched on, on it earlier. I really believe it's for someone who, like me, was looking for something on their bookshelf that told their story in a way, or told a story that resonated with where, where they were in their life. I think a lot of us are searching and yearning and seeking um, a better version of our own lives. We're happy with where we are. We're grateful for a lot of the things we have. But if you want more, what does that journey look like to get more and to get more aligned with the life that you're meant to live? Um, I hope that this book, you know, inspires people to sit down, think about their own life and um, make some of the changes I made so that I could sit here in front of you today and say, I'm grateful for every opportunity that's coming in front of me. I might not know where I'm going to be in six months to a year, but I'm happy and I'm content with my growth and my trajectory um, of, of onward. The trajectory is onward now. It's not become a partner or fix this or you know finish this milestone to move on to the next. It's just moving on. Yeah. Um, last couple of questions. Uh, in terms of social media influencing, I've seen you've done a lot of partnerships um you know with like head and shoulders bond, um you know dress for success things like that um do you have any advice for people you know in similar situations on working with brands and you know how how you handle that aspect of social media influencing yeah for me personally brands reach out to me i don't really reach out to them ever and uh they believe that they are aligned with me and i peer them out um i always make sure that I use the products or uh, believe in the products or the mission statement of the company. And then I make the decision if I want to partner with them or not. For me, it's quite simple. If I want to partner with them, I say, yes, we move forward with the deal. It's just like any business transaction. And if it's not a good fit, I'm the first one to say, it's just not a good fit for me. And I'll explain why I move on. Awesome. Um, As we wrap, you know, is there anything else that, you know, um, obviously, a lot of uh, men, women look up to you um, in terms of your confidence and, and the way you live your life. Is there anything else um, that we didn't talk about that you'd like to pass on to them? I think it's to always remember your self-worth and everything that you do. It's not just about love and partnerships. It's about your career and the way that you treat people um, and the way that you expect to be treated by people. It's about keeping up um, that sense of self always so that um, you're not getting lost in, in the tidal wave of, of the things that can sweep us up, like social media or like um, television or so-called fame or um, a relationship with a person that just sweeps you up. I want to always maintain that sense of self. I really do think that self-love is at the heart of it. I know it's a very popular phrase now, but I think it is something we shall strive towards and keep at the forefront. And then if we make decisions based on that and informed by that belief in ourselves, that um, we will surely thrive. And um, I'm finding that to be more and more true every day. Yeah. Well, Aparna, I I just want to thank you for being on and acknowledge you. Uh, It was awesome being able to spend some time with you um, and get to know you. Um, You know, the way you, you know, obviously, as, as you said, it's hard for you to conceptualize, but um, you've changed countless number of lives, you know, with being confident in who you are, um, and churning, you know, the word stubborn into, you know, a positive in terms of, 
you know, um, knowing what you want and going for that. And, um, as you, you know, liking yourself first and foremost. Um, so, uh, thank you for always being you and, uh, best of luck with, uh, your journey going forward and, um, you know, and the book process. Thank you so much for having me tonight. It's been a really fun chat. Thank you.